Well, sunny beaches of South Florida, is that you? Hello! Oh my gosh, how in the heck are you? You look amazing today. It is so good to see you again. Come on in and have a seat. Follow us or subscribe or whatever it is your medium requires and stay a while. We'd love to have you as part of our family. Say, while you're here, can I get you something to think today? In the spring of 1883, brothers Alonzo, William Henry, and Joseph Cook had a spread they began working on the Idaho-Wyoming state line called the Raymond Ranch. It was located at a place referred to as Border. Now, Border was situated in the valley south of modern-day Geneva, Idaho. This mountain valley straddled the Idaho-Wyoming border, and the Bear River meandered with all its snake-like patterns throughout the valley. In the early spring of that year, they brought to Border a herd of cattle from Paris, Idaho, and some sheep from St. Charles. All the while, they were working on an irrigation ditch fed by the Bear River. After some anxious deliberations, they finally contracted a 100-year lease from the Union Pacific Railroad so they could have a right-of-way and use of a bridge the railroad had for drainage. My name? Joseph Walcott Cook. Most people call me Wook, but Mother always referred to me as Walcott. I was born April 21st, 1855 in Salt Lake City, Utah, about a block east of the Eagle Gate. My father, Phineas Walcott Cook, was born in Gashin, Litchfield County, Connecticut, of an old American family that came to this country before 1640. My mother, Catherine McCleave, was born in Crawfordsburn, County Down, Ireland. Mother and her sister sailed on the ship Falcon, as they immigrated to Utah in 1853. As the weather began to warm that spring of 1883, the Cook brothers started preparing for haying season. They halted work on the ditch, later to be known as the Cook Canal, and put up all the hay they could, mostly around old brother Laker's ranch. They got about 50 to 75 tons of hay that year. On September 4, 1883, Joseph was married to Miss Elizabeth Nybar of Paris, Idaho. That winter they lived in a part of the old Laker house on the ranch, and Joseph was concocting a plan on how he might get some timber to build a house and corrals on his own place. Alonzo, Will, Henry, and Joseph were interested in the land and ditch on the flats. So, in October of that same year, they continued efforts on the ditch as they put a large crew to work putting in some rock-filled cribs, making the ditch the size they wanted it, which was about 25 feet wide and 18 feet on the bottom. They also constructed a fairly impressive headgate for those days. While on this digging job, we camped at the head of the ditch, and Libby, my affectionate name for my wife Elizabeth, well, she cooked for the men and I. We lived in a shack built of some boards that we had used in the headgate. These being tacked up on some posts with a layer overhead for a roof. But I'll be buggered if the first of November it didn't snow about 10 inches on us. The confounded ground froze, so we had to quit on the ditch for the season.
After they quit on the headgate and got things arranged, Will and Joseph went up to Raymond Canyon and tried to find a body of timber that they could work on all winter. But they found none that suited. On the hills and hollows that timber would slide on, it was all cut and gone. In one gulch toward the top, there was a lot of dry timber that just suited their purpose, but the hollow was so full of old timber and rocks, they couldn't get it down. About Christmas time, Libby thought she'd like to go to Paris, Idaho and stay while the men were camping in the canyon. Joseph, always happy to oblige the wishes of his Libby, he took her to Paris. It was about 20 miles as the crow flies, and shortly after we got there, it started snowing and blowing, and it kept up for two days and nights. Well, part of the time, we could barely see across the street. When it let up, I went back to the ranch, and there was about a foot of new snow there and drifting. Will and old man Harris and I went to Raymond Canyon to camp and pile some timber. But when we got to the mouth of the canyon, we found it full of snow slides. You folks call them avalanches. We went up and over them and saw that the slides had filled the road all the way to the gulch. That, that gulch that had the timber we wanted. It had a slide come down so that it filled it so we could work the horse on top of the fallen timber and rocks. We concluded to cut dugways around and over the slides, and this took all three of us several days, but before we got it done, it commenced to snowing again. Will and Harris gave up and went home. I finished the road and snaked a load down, but it was so steep the timber ran into my horse and hurt his hindhawk and lamed him so that I couldn't work him. I went down and tried to hire a horse from Evans or the Hearts, but they had none to spare, so I came down to Webb's. Well, he said he would go and see what he could find. Well, I came back the next day, and Webb had several young horses and told me I could take my choice. I told him, you're the best judge. Give me the one you think will answer my purpose best. Well, Webb then caught a roan colt three years old. It was only poorly halter broke and never had been worked. Well, I harnessed him anyway with my balky mare. Old Doll was her name. That old girl would never help start a load. I got the colt and old doll hitched to the empty sleigh, and they started off all right. The colt was slow and awkward, but the farther he went, the better he traveled. Joseph put an old house on the Raymond Ranch to camp in. The next morning, he was at the mouth of the canyon at daylight. It was bitter cold. The first tree he fell rolled and slid all the way to the sleigh road. So Joseph cut and slid till night. Then he rolled a few light sticks on the sleigh and was cautious to fix the sleighs on a downhill slope so the first jerk would start the team to go by themselves. Joseph then hitched the roan bronco and old doll and down the canyon they went. They actually arrived at camp in one piece. Whoa, bronco. Whoa, old doll. Nice work, you two. The next morning, Joseph was in the canyon at daylight again. He cut and slid timber all day and repeated the same manner of loading, but made the load a little heavier this time. Joseph kept this up for about 10 days and got all the timber he wanted cut and hauled to the mouth of the canyon. He took a load to camp each night. Well, by this time, it started to snow and blow, 
And on the final day in the canyon, there were more slides and avalanches. Walcott felt very fortunate that the bitter winter weather had held off for so long. With the logs acquired, building the house in the spring was looking to be more of a reality than ever before. Joseph spent the rest of the winter hauling most of the timber home, but it snowed and blowed so much that he didn't get all of it home before the ice gave way on the river. When the roads got dry enough, Joseph hauled the rest to the river and piled it on the water in the form of a raft and then floated it down to where the river came nearest the place he was hoping to build, and then he fastened the load to the bank. When the river level receded, it left the logs on dry ground and made a small job of hauling it to where he wanted it. In March of 1884, there was about three feet of snow on the border flat, right up to the horse's belly. About the 1st of April, the abundance of snow caused the river to raise so high that it ran out of its banks and stayed there for quite some time. By May, the whole river valley was a lake. I think there was more high water that came down the river that spring than any spring since that I can remember. There was about 3,000 acres in the border flat, and our ditch watered all of it. We recorded the ditch in the name of the Cook Brothers Canal. Well, they've shortened it a bit in the modern day, but it's still known as the Cook Canal, if you look it up. About the 1st of April, Joseph cleared away the snow and started to build his house. The main part was 25 by 16 and about 12 feet to the rafters. It was bedded inside, and the cracks were dubbed full of clay and sand, and it made a smooth wall inside. He put it in a good chimney made of brick. This was built on the partition area that made two rooms quite comfortable. There was also a chamber high enough for two comfortable loft bedrooms. No stairway, only a ladder. The walls of a large room on the south made the house in the form of an L. The main part was covered with a good roof of shingles, making it a most decent-looking house for a pioneer. Joseph and Libby moved into this house in the forepart of July. The high water had caused quite a hay crop to grow on a good share of the land. My brother Nybar, Libby's father, my in-law, and her two brothers, William and Isaac, they came over to help me hay. They had a yoke of oxen and brother Nybar mowed. Isaac raked the jags of hay and Will and I hauled with the oxen. We got over 200 tons, and I gave them half of all that we put up. That winter, we sold a 100 ton of it to the cook boys of Dingle, Idaho, for $2.50 a ton. In December, Libby was heavy with our first child, and we moved her over to Paris and rented a room from Brother Margaret's. Well, on January 21st, 1885, Libby had a nice nine-pound boy born to her. I was mighty proud young father for the first week, but on the ninth day after the boy was born, she passed away. A short time before she drew her last breath, about a half hour, I think, she asked for old brother Gollins, who lived next door, to come and administer to her. As soon as this was done, she said, I'm going. My baby, oh, my baby, I see mother. How glad we will be when you come. Then she passed away and left me. Oh, this was a terrible blow to me. My home was broken up. My companion gone. A woman that I dearly loved. 
The maternal mortality rate in the late 1800s was as high as 8.5%, which means that 85 out of every 1,000 live births resulted in the death of the mother within the first year. The most current maternal mortality rate in the United States from 2019 is 20 deaths per 100,000 live births. Mrs. John Sutton cared for the baby for a few days. Then Joseph's sister, Phoebe, cared for him. But sadly, in the early part of May, the infant boy died. They buried him by the side of his mother in the Paris-Idaho Cemetery. He was named Joseph Walcott, his father's full name. The infant mortality rate in the 1800s was 43%. Just over half of the children born during this time survived to five years old. Pioneers especially got their share of mourning with those that mourn. Up to this time, the care of my boy and work to provide for him had somewhat numbed my grief of losing my Libby. But now it seemed I had nothing left to work or live for. It took all my energy and faith to keep up. Finally, the Lord showed me in my meditations two roads. One led to good and happiness, the other to darkness. In my extreme grief, I was on the road to darkness, and this seemed to awaken me to the realization of my condition. So I tried to forget my trouble and work. Work was a great help to me as I got into it. As my great-great-nephew, Quentin L. Cook, recently remarked, adversity is not evidence of the Lord's disfavor, nor a withdrawal of His blessings. Brother Nybar and the same boys again helped Joseph to put up the hay. They had more than the year previous, but there was no sale for it. Joseph started on the railroad to see if he could find a market for it. He had no money, so he made his way to Butte, Montana, where he had a contract to sell all that he had at $7.50 per ton, delivered on the cars at border. Mr. Dolman, the buyer, could not use any for 30 days, so Joseph started back for border and stopped on the way at a mining camp called Nicolia. It was about 25 miles west of Market Lake, which was near the railroad. He worked nights in a smelter for about 30 days, then headed home. The majority of the hay was sold before spring. In the summer of 1887, Walcott got a call to fill a mission in the southern states. He had six months to get ready to go. That summer, Henry, Will, and Walcott put up hay, and Henry's wife lived in Walcott's house and boarded the men. Shortly after haying, Dolman came from Butte, Montana, and contracted all of our best hay. With this new contract, I decided to join with Alonzo in buying a newfangled hay press. The hay would be mowed, dried, raked, and then hauled to this here hay press where it would be placed into a large hopper from the hay wagon. An oxen or horse would then be harnessed and walk in a circle, moving the levers and turning the cam to operate the press. So the cam in turn pushed a plunger back and forth in the chamber of the press. This compressed the hay down to about an eighth of its original bulk. It retained more of its quality, was easier to store, and simpler to transport to market. 
This contraption was a huge advancement forward in hay production. It took about six people to operate a medium-sized hay press. Two people fed the press. One tied the bales with twine. Another removed the finished bales, and extra hands were needed to tend the horses. Uh, a one-horse outfit could bale about a thousand pounds an hour. As the old saying goes, you can never have enough hay. If you want to see the press in action, links will be included in the show notes. You can also see images of some of these era hay presses on Instagram at fyo.podcast. On about September 17th, as they were learning this new piece of equipment, some men who were working for Alonzo broke it. The cook boys immediately telegraphed for replacement parts, which did not arrive until Christmas Eve. In the meantime, Joseph's brother Henry had gone to Evanston and bought another press and sold their hay that Dolman didn't purchase. And then he returned to Border to get his new hay press up and running. On September 6th, John Bryson, who was Will's brother-in-law, was feeding the press from the hay wagon when he slipped in the feed chamber with both feet. And they were crushed so badly that one had to be amputated at the ankle. And on the other... All of the toes had to be taken off. After the extra parts for Alonzo and Joseph's hay press arrived, Joseph soon got it started, and they were finally running along fairly well when Charlie Smith, who was feeding the press now, caught his fingers in the feed chamber, and they were harmed so badly they had to be taken off at the first joint. By this time, Henry Crook had got a little house built and moved into it. Joseph got Chauncey Dustin to come and work for him, and have his wife do the cooking. She was Joseph's sister, Jenny. This was the best arrangement he had had in his home for quite some time. Well, finally February came, and I was to leave for Salt Lake on the 7th for the South. It seemed that old Nick had put everything in the way to prevent me from getting ready. You might not remember the term old Nick. I'm not talking about Saint Nick, either. It was prevalent in my day as a shortened version of Old Iniquity, a.k.a. Beelzebub or Satan the Tempter. I was currently in debt about $1,800. In today's currency, that's over 50000 I had hay enough to pay all that was due and some to spare if I could have got it to market. I had exerted all of my efforts all fall to get it off and had only one car shipped. I wrote to my brother Davis S. in Garden Sea and asked him if he could come and take charge of my work, and let me go on my mission. He answered he would, so I made out a list of all my debts and started for Garden City to complete the arrangements. As I approached the top of the summit at Indian Creek, I looked back on the ranch, and the thought came to me, what a fool you must be to leave your business in such a shape and work for nothing. Then another thought came to me, you have had six months to prepare for this mission. Do you think you will have six months' notice to prepare for death? This settled my mind. I was off for my mission. Let come what might. Joseph met Dave before he made it to Fishhaven, which is just north of Garden City. Dave was on his way to the ranch at Border, so they talked for a bit, made arrangements about the work, and then bid goodbye. Joseph went on to Garden City, where they had a nice party arranged for his departure. The idea that a missionary needed money had not dawned on them. 
The party was good, but toward the last of it, Charlie Smith confronted Joseph about the loss of his fingers in the hay press, and he wanted to know what Joseph was going to pay him in reparations. Well, Joseph told Charlie he would pay him nothing, for it was not his fault Charlie lost his fingers in the press. Well, Charlie talked about suing him, but that was the last Joseph heard of it. They must have been some awkward parting words from an old misfortunate friend. After a stop back in Paris, Idaho, Joseph Walcott Cook was off to Salt Lake. After arriving there, he went to Apostle John Taylor's home and stayed at his request. He had been up on Thomas Fork in the fall and located some land to get a ditch out on later. Joseph had been with John a good deal while there at Thomas Fork and had done some work with them. Later, Joseph leased his border ranch to John and his brothers for two years, and he borrowed $200 from the Taylors to outfit him for his mission. As it happened, Apostle Taylor set Joseph apart for his mission, and he blessed Joseph with understandings that were literally fulfilled. I finally left Salt Lake on the Denver-Rio Grande Railroad, and I rode it to Kansas City, Missouri, but then changed to the Fort Scott Gulf Railroad and crossed the Mississippi River at Memphis, Tennessee, thence to Chattanooga, where we were met by President William Spry. I was assigned to my field of labor, which was in Carter and Mitchell County, North Carolina. You know, I didn't get a word from home for six weeks. And when I did, it was from my brother-in-law, Chauncey Dustin. He said that as soon as I was out of sight, everything operated like clockwork. That not even a bolt worked loose to detain them. And all the hay was shipped, and they were waiting for the money from the hay, which came in due time. Here are my takeaways. Life in the 1800s was merciless. Live with it, live without it, lose it, or die from it. When it comes to feet, toes, and fingers, don't rush things. As Viggo Mortensen phrased it, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was from a horse master. He told me to go slow, to go fast. We live as though there aren't enough hours in the day, but if we do each thing calmly and carefully, we will get it done quicker and with much less stress. Determination can see you through devastating moments and to magnanimous accomplishments. In your darkest hours, remember that pain is essential, misery is optional. God isn't in your plans. God's in your interruptions. Love them with all your might. You never know how much time you'll get with them. And as Grandpa Penn loved to say, Hard work ain't easy. Well, dad blasted, I sure enjoyed the visit today. If you gained something from it, be kind enough to follow us and leave a review. And do it right now. If you would, it'd sure be appreciated. Your comments have been so considerate and honestly left me blushing. And good night, those reviews make a big difference in the program's visibility. On the Apple platforms, you select the Go to Show option. And then click the circle plus sign at the top right to follow. Then scroll down below the episodes to leave some stars and a review. Them algorithms need all the help they can get so as I can disrupt more good folks like you. So I tell you what, if you got a friend or three that you just don't like very much, well, share this podcast with them and let us bug them for a while. And if you have comments or suggestions for future discussions, well, don't just 
just keep them to yourself. We, we'd love to hear from you. You can DM us on our Instagrams at fyo.podcast. And thank you. Are you still there? Remember to download the Family Tree app and see how you are related to the people from today's episode. All those links will be included in the show notes. Sometimes it's important to look a gift horse in the mouth. Your gift is your ancestry. Your superpower is their family history stories that make you. Not a one of us crawled out from under a rock, regardless of what you've been told. You have 4,094 grandparents, over 12 generations, with thousands of love stories, battles, difficulties, sadness, happiness, and expressions of hope for the future that allows you to be here today. We are the culmination of so many things we did not choose. It was designed that way. So be gentle with yourself and others. Take the time to learn yourself through your family history stories. There are innumerable tributaries flowing into the life experience that deceptively seems to be your own, but it's not. So think about that as you row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Russell M. Nelson stated, when our hearts turn to our ancestors, something changes inside us. We feel part of something greater than ourselves. (laughs) I concur. Thank you for joining me on another unbelievably true adventure. Find your family history superpower and activate it. Until the next time, bye.